Welcome back to the Michael Anthony Show podcast. And thank you for tuning in once again. Obviously, the show is off the back of another one of its mysterious, unannounced, um, medium to long-term layoffs. And when that kind of thing is happening as consistently as it is now on this production, just assume personal problems and serious ones at that um don't understand allegations regarding my sexuality that's occurring uh, between a certain section of listeners who have decided to message me about it but humans um will be humans and um i've learned even more about my co-inhabitants of earth over the last month that's perhaps pushed me even further away from um an ability to like other people. Um, I got kicked out of a taxi with a friend three weeks ago um, for farting. Um, again, I understand it's the taxi driver's uh, right to be frustrated by that, but I thought he showed an unbelievable um, lack of regard for the law and also empathy uh, by genuinely asking me to get out of his car. Nearly crying. He was very moved by it emotionally. And um, that coupled with the experience I had on a plane from Dublin to London three weeks ago in which a guy I was sitting beside who was 35 from South Dublin um, wearing Under Armour um, attire on his upper half possessing an accent that made you want to going to Gleason's Booters down with a machete. Yeah, this guy went on to to ask me, having sat shoulder to shoulder in silence for an hour as he drank one individual beer on a flight. Strange thing to do is be on your own and, and ask one of the air hosts or hostesses for a can of gargle. Um, I, I don't understand it. I don't understand uh, a lot of things people actually do with alcohol. Um, those people, it's quite cliche and we, we hear about it a lot, but those human beings who are in an airport at 7 or 8 in the morning and are drinking pints of Guinness, that's just public self-harm, essentially, for me. But, yeah, this guy this guy asks me when the when the plane pulls up in the at the runway which part of London I'm going to. Following my answer, he asked, did I want to split an Uber um, with them to a location an hour and 20 away from from Stansted Airport. Um, he didn't seem to pick up off my, my body language that was uncomfortable, um, closed off, um, essentially telling him I'd rather stab myself in the bollocks with a pen than sit in a car with this guy for an hour 20, um, engaging in small talk, and also having to engage in like an awkward payment with a person you don't know. How we, do I go to the ATM, do I revolute you? This is just so uncomfortable. Let me get the Stansted Express and stay out of my business. So I told him I was getting the Stansted Express. He then told me that the Uber is essentially the same price if we split it and just wouldn't let this thing go. Um, he then went on to give me the name of his irrelevant um, friends who happen to live in an area 
not too far away from where I grew up in Dublin and asked me, did I know them? Um, due to the fact that his carry-on bag was tightlist, he should have known that the answer was absolutely fucking not. The situation got worse as we were held up on the runway due to um, members of the travelling community refusing to acknowledge the Ryanair staff's requests to stay in their seats um, and not block the the aisle, which is their own business, and unfortunately, members of Her Majesty's Police had to had to come to the runway and and take care essentially of those individuals. Um, I don't know too much more about it, but we then had to sit through that together. And because he'd such a lack of uh, critical thought or interest in anything other than saving four euro, he was probably one of those guys. It was he struck me as the guy who, when he was sixteen. And playing Grand Theft Auto, he took pride in his net worth, that green number on the top right-hand corner of the screen. You go to someone's house, they're playing Grand Theft Auto, and they're, they're being tight with the fake cash. It says a lot about somebody. They're, they're, they're things to look out for. People negotiating over Monopoly boards on Christmas Day. When we got off the plane, I attempted to disguise myself in that little shuttle bus you get um, within a, a group of humans, but he could still see me. We then got off the shuttle bus, and I did not know what to do. He took steps up, I took an escalator, but he was refusing to, to let this concept go. I'm then waiting for a bag. Uh, he's not. He actually did ask me, do you have a bag to collect? I, do, I, do, I don't know what the fuck we were doing. So... My bag went around around 18 times. I stared at it each time, and I began to perform an act that suggested my bag was either missing or taking a long time, but this guy was waiting. This guy was waiting. So I walked around whilst faking a phone call to the other side of the conveyor belt, and I stared at him. The bag's just repeatedly going by me. And I just said, fuck this. And I just legged it. Um, I just legged it to the other side of the airport. And thought if I'm gone for 20 minutes, he'll he'll be gone when I get back. And I went and grabbed an Oasis drink and a vending machine nearby. That shows how much I wanted out of this situation. Because anybody who does uh, purchase the drink Oasis um, needs therapeutic intervention. Instantly. And I came back and he was gone. And then I essentially had to put on a balaclava, take my bag, walk into arrivals and get on a coach and try and wash off the entire experience. People are strange. There's people who are mocking the concept of the queen dying with Tunes such as Lizzie in a Box um, genuinely seem to, to get um, endorphins from an old woman moving on. And they're strange, but so are the people on the other side who are buying into this notion that the Queen 
was in some way their granny. Just because their real-life granny had similar blazers and a similar, really unattractive, regardless of age, barnet. Um, there is no great emotion um, in the Queen moving on. And that's not said as a Republican or bitter human who's anti-England on any level. It's just not big news. Not just the born-into-wealth thing. Not just that didn't really do anything to deserve her position, but also due to her age and a variety of other factors. I mean, I wasn't too good at when my own granny died, so I'm hardly going to lose sleep over the metaphorical granny of the nation whose face is on the money dying at 96 when her hand was blue a few days earlier shaking the hand of Liz Truss um, who's no longer now the Prime Minister but anyone who's surprised by the antics going on in 10 Downing Street needs to uh, needs to wipe the fog off their mirror and try to look themselves in the eyes and ask why do I believe the politicians are individuals that care about anything other than themselves, and why do I continue to take them seriously? Ask yourself that and try get an answer. Um, I'm all for people of the previous generation who needed artificially created structural phenomenon such as religion or monarchy to function. Like if, if, if a 72-year-old is getting emotional, I get that. Um, but there should have been an agreement put in place, and that should have been that, listen, we'll cancel football games, particularly the kind of United and Liverpool ones because there's a possibility a global audience might actually see uh, due to the northern voices of these working class fans that not everybody loved the fucking Queen and we can't have the Thai fans or the American fans seeing that. Let us cancel matches. Let us talk about um, nothing else on our news channels for seven straight days. Let's um, make you all subject to images of David Beckham having a singular tear float down his cheek as he stared at Lizzie's coffin, quite clearly now losing all pride in his continuous quest to be knighted. Let us tell you um, really boring stories about the Queen's sense of humour, which involve nothing other than her, like, telling someone, oh, you dropped your pen. These things were, these things were becoming news. Uh, your shoes are very yellow. Shaking someone's head. Is that... What are we talking about? But that would have been fine if they agreed to end the monarchy then. Because at this point, with Charlie Brown going in, putting the crown on, I mean, there's transcripts of... of him saying he wants to be Camilla's tampon via phone call. Um, and also his great-granddad was shagging Camilla's great-granny as well. There's also footage of him online break dancing. He's not a serious figure, so yeah, no royal family member ever has been, but now it's surely impossible even for the people who believe in the monarchy to pretend, oh, Charles is, is king, and sure fucking... By the time Free Willy's turn comes, his son could already have his own YouTube channel.
It's over. And we need to accept it. Like Ronaldo's United career. First of all, it never should have happened, that, that, that signing last season. That signing last season was motivated by nothing other than uh, virality and uh, commercialism. And also his season on a individual level was immensely overrated. Yes, he scored goals, but there is no doubt about the fact that he damaged our points tally uh, ultimately in the end. I think that anybody really knows that his, his lack of mobility, it's impossible to play around. But I don't blame Cristiano Ronaldo's reaction. The other day, if, if I essentially reinvented modern football, I wouldn't want to sit on uh, a bench for two hours and waste an afternoon watching impersonators, essentially, of me when I was younger, who are adopting nothing other than my narcissism, ignoring the talent in the shape of people like Rashford and Sancho. I'd also storm out. I mean, it's very easy for us to say it's not all about him, but I mean, I've made to claim they could have played tennis in the Olympics if they tried because... They got four first serves in, in a set. So if you've actually won the Ballon d'Or five times, imagine what you do think of yourself, or imagine what he's had to think of himself to be that good. So I'm not shocked that he's storming out, and I don't blame him. If Ronaldo didn't have that fucking sense of self-worth, he never would have got to the top, and we wouldn't have won three leagues in a row um, when he was at his best, or the European Cup, or he wouldn't have been crying into his forearm when he missed the penalty. Um, in a rainy shootout in Moscow in 2008. We all know, no one needs the Ronaldo memory lane stuff. But we know that that's what we love about him. But it is difficult for a new manager, in Eric Ten Hag, to um, react in any other way than putting the foot down because he's looking after his own career. Uh, Ronaldo's not going to be there for too much longer regardless. So I don't disagree with Ten Hag's reaction either. He has to look out for himself, even if he would have probably stopped Ronaldo in a hotel lobby five years ago and asked him for a photo. So no one's really to blame other than the people who are running it. And they're the people who can't let go or can't seem to agree on some kind of contract termination or agree on a way in which he can fucking leave last summer. They're the people who caused a refusal to let go of his 400 million Instagram followers and the world's general interest in him. And they want that to be happening in a Manchester United jersey because that's all those guys give a shit about. But no, I do thank you for all tuning in I've, I've realised how much you do all mean to me um, as listeners to the show and I have missed you there's a new feature to the show now as I will be playing music of bands who I believe should be bigger than they are um, and this isn't for any other reason than attempting to come across as important enough to promote music on the show, but I think we all are aware of that. This week, I am joined by James Brown, the founder of the iconic Loaded magazine of the 1990s, and a man who I believe we can all learn a lot from. I'm not going to introduce Mr. Brown any further, as I believe... Our conversation will give you a great insight into the man and his life because he's an authentic guy. And that comes across in his new book, Animal House, which you should go out purchase. Here we go. (laughs) 
sand of despair The smell of dread in the air I'm head to toe in my own fear I'm going to die and I need to cry ah. I'm a guy who does long um, for the 90s I wish I was part of the era which likes yourself, Irvin Welsh, McGee, and these guys defined. Um, what was it that was so unique about that decade that created so much kind of art and revolution within the uh, minds of people who didn't give a fuck? I think it happened for two reasons. One, it was a reaction and the development of what had been happening in the eighties. That's that's the most obvious thing, is that those people you just mentioned there, uh, our experience and success in the 90s was was all, you know, based on what we were doing in the, in the mid to late 80s. That was when we started doing things. People who, in a way, were kind of, even if it wasn't directly part of the Thatcher oppression and the overall depression that existed within kind of the English artistic culture in the yeah, 1980s. It was, it was an indirect response to it. I mean, when I... I guess Irvin, Alan McGee and I all probably left school roughly about the same time, you know, probably about, I think those two are a bit older than me, but 1983, 84, maybe they left about 81, 82, and I was telling somebody yesterday, there were no jobs. I don't mean there were few jobs. There were no jobs. So there was no internet. There was no YouTube. There was no Spotify. There was no file sharing. I mean, literally, you found out about things through your own curiosity and, and if you're lucky to have mates that would lend you records and books or, or parents or whatever, but you'd go to the live video, there'd be nothing in it. It'd be all tattered and torn. Um, so you kind of, um, you met like-minded people through gigs and at record shops or I guess if you're into fashion, through fashion shops or whatever. And when you've got nothing on offer, all you can do is rely on yourself to, to kind of... Uh, to take your lead from and and I think that everybody that you mentioned there and and other people that did well in 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 the 90s we were all doing it off our own back and that that made a big difference no one was helping us you know um all of those uh, early Irvin Welsh successes were based on his own life experience in the 80s you know um Oasis didn't just come along from nowhere Creation had already had going way back, you know, from they'd had the bigger acts like the Mary Chain and Primal Scream and House of Love. But then before that, they'd had the Loft and the Legend and 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 that era in the kind of about nineteen eighty five, eighty six. And same with me, you know, Loaded didn't just happen. I would gone from eighty seven to ninety two on the NMA, and before that, writing for a few other magazines, and then before that, doing my own fanzine. The art came before the political change that kind of introduced. New Labour and the Tony Blair era and him yeah, totally. wanting to be mates yeah, with totally. Oasis, I mean, wanting to be loaded. Do you think that you guys were also kind of fucked over by the system that you took it into your own hands and actually changed the political landscape yeah. of the UK? Yeah, definitely. I mean, Norman Tebbit, who was one of Thatcher's henchmen, famously said that people without a job should get on a bike and look for one. Um, and as as is the case now, the, 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 the Conservative government have no concept of what life is actually like beyond their own gilded bubble. And uh, and I think I genuinely didn't know anyone who had a job when I left school. 
uh, you know, who'd gone out and got a job. I knew one guy worked for his dad in his greengrocers. That was it. I didn't know anybody else at a job. And um, I was living in a place called Kirkstall in, in Leeds, which was just down from Headingley where I grew up. And um, so my lifeline to doing something better was listening to John Peel at night, going to gigs and reading the music papers like Enemy and Sounds. And that that was the wider world that I wanted a part of. And then beyond that, uh, picking up fanzines in political bookshops and uh, at gigs and in record stores uh, and just finding this network of other fanzine editors throughout the country. And, and what, that, was, what was the plan of that Conservative government if that didn't happen? As in the boredom led to the exploration of drug use, creativity, and not giving a fuck because you had no choice, and that's what that's what bred all of this great art. But if that didn't occur, what did they expect to happen to the unemployed people of England at the time? They didn't, they didn't care what happened. They thought you could live off fourteen pounds a week. That's what you used to get. You used to get. But were they trying to change the style of work or the belief system of these people? Like, what did they want you to do at the time? What well, was Thatcher's take? Well, they just wanted to. Um, they wanted to crush the working classes so there'd be no significant opposition to the way they wanted the country to run. And that way... So they, they wanted a fight. They picked a fight. I, I just watched that programme, Sherwood. I don't know if you saw that with David Morrissey. Um, it was a really interesting drama that came out earlier this year. And that, it was pretty... You know, the, my dad would take me to the picket lines, you know, when I was about 18. He'd drive us down to the picket lines, not too far from the area he grew up in. And, um, you know, they captured that pretty well on, on Sherwood about the tension and the way the communities were... were divided and um the the tories wanted a fight they wanted to make an example of a of a of an economic class and a workforce and they picked the miners and um they did it to just establish their authority over the country and they spent more time telling people not to get aids and and not and not to uh take heroin because you because you'll you know, they, they they spent more time focusing on on negatives than being positive and and in investing anything. It was uh, investing money in in that generation leaving school. I mean, you'd walk around the where you're from. I remember going walking around Dublin when I was about eighteen, and just uh, streets were littered with with smack addicts. You know, and uh, when you go to Irving's books, you get the impression that it's in on schemes or whatever. But the city centres were full of doorways. We're homeless people, drug addicts, beggars, and it—it it, it was, um, you know, the miners' strike was was—it was a really big, motivating, and div- but also at the same time di- divisive um, situation that kind of just scarred the country. And then every night, you know, at the same, the same time we're talking about this, it was totally normal uh, to just turn the television news on every night and. Uh, be another, you know, either another bomb or another soldier killed in in, or, in the north in Northern Ireland. Angelic Upstarts had a song about last night another soldier. How it just became wallpaper almost. You know, the idea that there were young British guys getting shot, and then there were people in in the north of Ireland, you know, like blowing each other up and shooting each other, and it was just this really. It wasn't a great time to be around. Would you have a much more sympathetic view? the likes of yourself and people who are northern-based um, who kind of oppose Thatcher towards the IRA, would you view them as fellow victims? Well, I think the... Um, 
it wasn't until I went to Belfast that I re- and, and, and Derry that I, when I was in about 1985 that I realised it wasn't as simple as it read in The Socialist Worker. I think young people on the whole were against the state because the state wasn't doing anything for us. You know, there weren't. You've read, you've read my book. You've seen the, the the experience that I had in the careers office. When I told them I wanted to write about bands, they suggested I become a printer. You know, they weren't. They didn't have very high yeah. hopes for our generation. Yeah. So I think that the in a way, depending on where you were getting your politics from, the the most simple and basic way of getting politics was obviously to pick up newspapers and watch the news. Um, I spent a lot of time watching things like Panorama and World in Action. I I, I was interested in. And what was going on? What was going on in the world? So, you kind of um, you got a simplified view of of bigger political issues. Uh, and whereas you could go, you could get in a car or, or on a bus or whatever, and, and actually go and stand on a picket line in in Yorkshire, in South Yorkshire, or you could go and be on a march. You know, or got a men with Hill. You know, where there was the American spy base, and you know, they're all linked into the weapon systems were based. Uh, but to go when I went to Belfast on tour with a band, you just saw it was a, it was much more layered and complicated than the headlines that I'd see in the uh, the left wing papers that I'd, that I'd be sold on these marches I'd go on. When I see all these guys who led the revolution um, of the nineties, drugs was heavily involved for most of them if not nearly all I've spoken to. Uh, were the drugs actually a friend in the end? Did they help kind of not give a fuck or chase yourself creatively, or were they just a way of numbing pain? Um, were the drugs nearly that's beneficial? Good, that's, that's a good question. I think it was just, you know, it was like going to the pictures. It was just part of... But without getting high and without doing coke, would you have had the ability to not care? Because drugs do provide that, because they take you out of reality in a way. So if you, if the reality which you're fighting against is something that's so oppressive, fear, is, fear tr- is something they use to make sure that you keep quiet. So yeah, you're yeah, getting fucking high off your nut is a It benefit. depends what drugs you were doing. You know, I think I like changing the way I felt. I mean, I didn't understand that term until I got clean, but that's what I was doing. I liked... Um, I didn't really take drugs until I, until I joined the NME and there was a lot of speed around. I'd, I'd had a speed a few times, but I didn't... In my teens, I thought, I didn't think they were a... I thought... I mean, the phrase that later became apparent was straight edge, but I wasn't straight edge because I drank a lot, but I kind of thought... When I was doing my fanzine, I thought saving these tales of of cocaine with rock stars was a a decadent, different world, and it wasn't something that I was kind of, you know, was interested in. And then it just became a kind of a byproduct of success in the same way as you could buy champagne. But did it give you an edge? Did it give you an no, edge? No, I don't think it did. Well, I think also that you go through different classes, you go through different ex- different drug experiences. I think the um, I, I think it would be a mistake to assume that, um, that the sort of landed gentry or, or, or the kind of more upper-class Tories aren't, weren't taking drugs. And, um, you know, I think... I don't, I don't think it gave me an edge at all. No, nothing. I think it wasn't. I wasn't looking for an edge. I had an edge as an individual. In fact, if anything, when I was in my late teens, I thought taking drugs would erase that edge. Mm. And it was only when I got involved in the music business as a music writer on the NME that I started to in, 
encounter people who would occasionally, you know, have different drugs. And then later on, but it was never a conscious decision to try and, oh, I will. I mean, I remember, I do remember trying to write drunk and another time I remember writing on speed. And if you're trying to work for a weekly music music paper, you, you can't, it's not possible. What not, not successfully. One night I was working on this paper called Sounds and uh, I didn't have anywhere to stay when I used to come to London. And I had to do the singles reviews, which would mean... Everybody, all the bands that released singles every week would send them in to the music paper. So you'd get this massive bag with about 130 singles in it, 12 inches, small singles, cassettes. You'd have to take them away to wherever you lived or you were staying and, and you listen to the, the, as, as pretty much all of them, as many as you could. And I'd know where to do it. And I was ringing around mates. And this was before phones. But this is the other thing. The communication network was, was kind of pretty basic. So you rang somebody if they were in. You say, if you've got a spare room, can I come and use your record player for tonight? And um, I was ringing all my usual mates, and I, c- I couldn't, I couldn't find anybody who was in, you know. Um, and Phil Jupiter, you know, the guy, the comedian who was mm. on Nevermind the Buzzcocks. He used to be a ranting poet called Porky, Porky the poet, and. Um, I knew him from the fanzine years, and he said, look, I'm going with my girlfriend, you can have my flat. So I took these bags over to Shadwell, which was where he lived, or kind of east, you know, fairly close East London. And I did have a night, I had some speed that night. I spent most of the night jumping up and down to this Australian punk group. It sounded like the Ramones, they were called the Eastern Front. And uh, that was it, you couldn't, this idea that you could, you could write on drugs didn't ever work for me what definitely gives an edge though was pain um having the experience of familial problems yeah and because what expression really is and what successful expression of creativity is is making people relate to you and everyone in a way has their own pain their own secrets or their own doubts but society functions in a way in which we have to pretend they don't exist mm-hmm. that's kind of what do you reckon gave you the edge you're talking about was the, the situation going on with your mother? Did well, that think, give you the verbosity and the, 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 the need to protect yourself and use comedy as a deflection mechanism, was it? Well, I think when you, you know, if you go through Animal House, everything, all the lights and the sun is shining, the lights are on and the sun is shining. You know, the, the stuff that I write about my about my childhood is is lots of fun and, you know, loving music and stuff. And then about, by about the time I was 13, 14, 15, my mum was ill. She had sort of mental illness on and off. The Yorkshire Ripper was killing women and leaving them behind the local shopping centre or where I played table tennis or smacked a woman that was staying at my girlfriend's parents' bed and breakfast over the head with a hammer. You knew the employment figures were rising. So as you kind of got to the age where I was leaving school, you knew they weren't really, didn't look good. You've got a heroin epidemic. Uh, later, you've got the kind of the emergence of AIDS. You've got the miners' strike going on. You've got the you've got the CND. There was a genuine fear that, like there is now in the Ukraine, that that the intensity of of the Cold War between the West and the East would result in a nuclear war. It all got pretty dark and grim, and and um, so that definitely uh, uh, you know use the word edge but i think it gave me a drive i just didn't want that i wanted more than what was on offer because there was nothing on offer i didn't i was really frustrated i didn't i just i just needed to get somewhere 
where I could do some have a sense of self worth, and I think lots of people feel that. However, that plays out. But that that worry to carry around, like when, when there's a figure, like a parent, like a mother or a father, yeah, and life is kind of serving up things that aren't physical, that they're, they're mental health mm. problems. So it's so in a way foreign to someone who's not sharing that brain. Um, were you afraid of life a bit, or did you feel like you'd no protection? Or, like, how was that as somebody with, with that kind of level of worry going on about someone like your mother who was in and out of you know, feelings of that's vulnerability? A good, that's a good question. At that point, I wasn't afraid of life at all. And I just wanted to get on with it. I just wanted to have something to do, and I wanted to be a kind of... I kind of understood there was a lot out there, and I wanted some of it. Um, did you ever get sucked in? No, but I think le- no. But later, later when I went into uh, in my early thirties, when I started addressing my my drug use and my drink use, and I started actually analysing what had gone on through my life, I was aware of a kind of internal um, fear that had gone on. That was always there, just like actual, just paranoia. I, I would. This sounds. I've never told anyone this apart from privately, but I used to, for years, if I was in a room, I'd be looking around a room, looking to see where I would go if, like, a lion came in mm. and stuff like that. Just really strange. Yeah. And um, and then likewise, walking home late from gigs, thinking. I'll walk down the middle of the street and then if somebody jumps me, I can, there's a chance of getting the car in between. And this, neither of these th- these constant thoughts were based on any reality. You know, I was never mugged and I never had a but wild animal a come in the living room. Of, of what happens if... It was just a sense of a, a, an underlying sense of fear, but it didn't affect... It didn't hold me back in any way. It didn't stop me doing anything. If, if anything, it made me cocky and mouthy. But it must be weird that what you feared most actually ended up happening. Do you think there was a subliminal knowledge that you always knew with your mother's condition that the possibility of her taking her own life was always no, going to No, not be? at all. She, my mum was ill on and off. You know, she wasn't, like, permanently ill. Well, in her stages of illness, would you have thought? No, I didn't, I didn't think she would... Um, she would die of an overdose of... You know, I didn't think... That would happen. I mean, there was there were uh, when I was working on the enemy. I was living in London. There were times when she was increasingly spending more time in hospitals and things. But um, no, that was a bit of a shock. This is obviously something that a lot of the listeners uh, it will matter to because suicide is such a strange thing to to deal with yeah. in terms of the reaction to uh, how you deal with the person uh, who did it. Some people hold anger, then some people hold sympathy, yeah. and they ask themselves because they had done more. Is the secret to it of somebody whose um, relationship with somebody who did uh, lose their life to mental health, that of a mother and son, is the secret just kind of forgiving them and kind of making sure that you do realise it is their own mind? And although... Yeah, that's what I put in the book. I mean, I was kind of, in a way, I was relieved. I mean, I call that chapter Pressure Drop. Yeah. Because that was instinctively... When my dad told me my mum had had died, I... um, put that record on pressure drop you know the old reggae track of the harder they come and um 
it felt like something lifting because I thought, okay, that, I'm not going to get any more, you know, in a really fatalistic way. I thought I'm not going to get any more calls saying she's yeah and uh, harmed herself or she's in hospital or she's not well. But these were this wasn't every week. These might be like later in her life, maybe a couple of times a year, you know. And then when I was in my teens, maybe every few years it might happen. Um, so. You know, over the years, I've heard Peter Woodens was on a message board listening to some people having a a row about whether people who take their own lives are, are, are selfish. And then a, another message board I was on, this is what we were on before social media existed, yeah. people talking about football or whatever, um, talking about a guy that I knew who'd thrown himself off a bridge and, and did later com, com, commit suicide. Um, people being insensitive to that. I think... I mean, people have to deal with it in their own way. If you understand the person who has done it, what their life is like, then it's easier to understand what their death is for. Mm. You know, if somebody's ill, and, you know, my mum didn't write a suicide note and plan anything out. You know, my my dad kind of thinks she had a, you know, sort of a panic attack and she wasn't... Misadventure to an extent in a way of... Yeah, I mean, that's what they said on the, you know, that's what the verdict was my granny really pushed for that i mean she was of a generation where suicide would be seen as a shameful thing but she died by her own hand and i think one of the things that i felt about writing about that i never i've never talked about this much publicly i've never you know this i'm pretty old now and so i've written about in this book but um i think i've spoken to people over the years and for a long time it was very it was very isolating experience. So now when you see people like Professor Green doing a documentary about his father's suicide or you have uh, a, a much more visible discussion about what it's like to have been a, a family member or close to somebody that, that's, that's done that, it, it's, it's a good thing and, it, and, it, and it's, it's easier to get information. And I think as I put in my book, it was, it was, there was nothing was no grievance helplines not sorry no grieving helplines or or, or or kind of um support or there wasn't even anyone thrusting leaflets at me you know from the nhs or anything like that there wasn't any therapy yeah. or there was just nothing at all the tough thing as well when it comes to those situations is when someone dies the whole um way of coping is looking back on the experiences shared together or the concept of their life but if they decided to end it off their own life experience it's tough to not view the whole thing as a tragedy it's it's nearly memory ruining in some ways that's a thought that can creep in when it comes to suicide whether it's a friend family member anything. yeah another thing that i find interesting is that when you look at something like loaded magazine that you went on to find after uh working nme the opportunities if it was nowadays for viral content off the stuff that you guys were doing in terms of short videos, TikToks and all that shit. Yeah. It would be one of the biggest brands in the world. Yeah, I sometimes think about that, you know, my social reach would be enormous because there was a million people reading every issue. Was by, it? by the time I left, it was like well over a million reading everyone because they, you'd have this independent audited uh, number that would say how many how many people had, had seen each issue and Loaded was forever getting stolen off office desks or student common rooms or barracks or, or wherever people were reading it, you know, or getting passed around. Um, so, yeah, I do think about it. I mean, we were a bit too early. We used to film some of the trips. 
that we went on. We had some good footage of um, a week in New York. I saw some video of, you know, the actress Mila, or the actor Mila Yolovich? Yeah. It was a hilarious video of a really drunken, bad photo shoot with her. You can see her getting more and more, <laughs> more and more upset. And, and at one point you can see the commissioning editor edging into shot, trying to get a picture on his own camera. That's <laughs> the photographer's trying to get him out of the way. And then uh, another time we went and spent a week on an island off Scotland, you know, with no running water or fridges or anything that was, you know, con- you know, we just slept on the floor in a tent in a cave. You know, and um, we took a lot of video of that, and the, but we didn't have anywhere to put it. It was you know, just the, the idea that you would put video on a, even on your your website, which yeah. was only just built in like nineteen ninety five, was just you didn't. Nobody had any concept of that, and um, would have been talked about at the time, but you just didn't have the coding or the technology of how handy. There was it would no be. way to share it with anybody, and you know, I used to talk about ideas for the magazine. You know, I had this idea of. The readers was, loved the magazine so much. They were so interactive with it. Anytime we had competitions or things, content within the magazine that we asked people to send in, we got fucking hundreds and hundreds of, of postcards and letters and so on. This predated public-facing email even. And um, I remember saying one time, wouldn't it be great if we could get like 500, 500 readers dressed in one colour at the end of Oxford Street and 500 at the other and they'd come together at Oxford Circus and just see what happened, just march down the street and stop them on, which was just, would later become flash mobs. Yeah. But we had no way of organising that. Or, and there were a lot of things like, we're, in, we're recording this in Dalston. I mean, Dalston in the 1990s was not a place anywhere in the media would ever go. And um, we went to Dalston Shopping Centre and asked if Roland Rivron could be the Father Christmas. He was like this TV comedy actor yeah. who was who was a little loose in terms of uh, the way he conducted himself. He was great fun, Roland. He is great fun. And so <laughs> the original Santa was a bit put out, but we just said, can we? Can he just do it for morning for our story? And they said, yeah, okay. You know, the TV presenter, the TV star. So I sat and watched that, and we had another guy filming it, and Roland came back after lunch pissed a little bit pissed, but he was very good at acting drunk. And he had a real donkey with him. So Roland's walking through the shopping centre, like glugging scotch or brandy or something. And um, these people were just going, God, what's going on, going on? And then we had a couple of guys dressed as police came and took him away. People were just wondering. I sat sat in just an old coat at the side of this unassociated, watching the whole thing, filming a bit of it. And somebody else was filming it. So we used to used to do this stuff and that we didn't have anything to do with the videos. And so when social media started building, I used to think, oh, such a pity that we didn't... That exactly what you said, it would have been huge. But also the accessibility of information and videos has also lowered the standard of fun and, and banter, really. Like... Um, when you talk about going to Dublin in the Jackie Charlton days, yeah. and you're with Phil Babb, and you're with Jason McAdear, yeah. and you're walking out of lifts, and they were essentially like the Beatles in they the were. 1960s, <clears throat> and Jackie Charlton was saying, here, let's stop training and have a bacon sandwich. Yeah. The professional era has completely watered that down, and the behaviour of the players that you were subject to and could write about wouldn't be happening anymore. And not just that, things like music and football, which Loaded captured so well in terms of the sense of the times, no longer have the same meaning. Like, how do you deal as a huge football fan like I am and I can see in her book, every time you make a reference, and it could be something serious, 
you talk about the same phone as I found out about my mother's death and Eric Cantona leaving Leeds. Anytime you're analysing how you're feeling at a time, it could be the struggles under George mm. Graham, it could be the signing of Lucas Radaby, it could be Leeds winning the league in 92. Yeah. Would you agree that football kind, it doesn't matter as much anymore? And it's not just an ageing thing, there is there is a sense of the players don't care as much about their individual performance as a team and weren't about winning. They're, the FIFA card has become relevant. They've got paid so much that they know they're going to be entrepreneurs after their career. It's already nearly set up. I think there's certainly a lot more accessibility. It's quite, un, it's quite unusual when, if you go back to the loaded days, when I had to pay Paul Merson 500 quid to interview him. Whereas now you can find yourself talking to a current professional or a fan can find themselves talking to a current professional player on their social media. You know, sometimes they interact. I mean, obviously, a lot of them just have PRs given but them But I'm not talking about the media. I'm talking about the overall actual sport and the connection we have as fans. Do you think that the kind of cult following and importance of football teams to the fans who are in the stadium now who are filming games through their phone and taking selfies and holding up <coughs> a placard saying, can I have your shirt? Do you think it affects their week and day as much as it did back in the 80s or I 90s? Think it's, I think it's a much easier to be a, a very active football fan there. And it's also much easier to be a very clued up or informed football fan and not be active, not go to the games. And I think when you see a lot of fans moaning, I don't think that was as visible, that dissatisfaction and the immediacy of um, information and, and, and despondency. And people get so wound up about it. And I, I, that, obviously that wasn't going on. Because it just wasn't, it's the same with politics. There just weren't constant arguments to be had either between the fans of the same club about different players that are or aren't playing or whether the manager's any good or not. I mean, it'd be interesting to see. It feels like they get fired a lot quicker. You know, I don't know how many managers got sacked in 1990 in, in League Division 1. But I doubt it's anywhere near as close as as the amount of people who will be sacked this year. But would you agree that the ability of everyone to turn themselves into their own magazine via Instagram yeah. or their own Twitter has taken away their actual connection with art, sport, and all of the above? Like in Oasis gig in 1994, there was no phones. You had to connect with Liam Gallagher's kind of beautiful stubble and his voice. Yeah, that's voice. a good point. And yep. now it's a case of I'm at the Oasis gig, or now it's a case of I'm at the football, and you're no longer analysing the accuracy of Beckham's corners or how many yellow cards David Batty has. Yeah, they're kind looking to out. cap... Yeah. And also the gam- the accessibility of online gambling has led to a culture in which fans of Leeds or United are going to the Bulls at 3 o'clock to watch games. But they also have four other games back than no, both you're teams right. to it's, score, it's, and it's, it's not as tribal. It's oversaturated with other things that are connected with it. Um, but you know what? If you just want to really go to back to what it was like in those days, just go and watch a small team. Go and watch a team that outside the professional pyramid have made, maybe got like 500 fans and they're serving like very thin vegetable soup to their players after the yeah. game in, in, the, in the only bar they've got and they're serving really poor burgers at half-time. And when the ball goes over a little wall behind the, behind the net and the neighbour tries to steal the ball, the player gets annoyed because they don't have another ball. You know, I've been, I, some, I occasionally go to like non-league football and um, or even lower league football. I mean, it's a different world. Anybody, but do you miss that? Who longs world? for that? No, I don't miss it. I think it's. I like the fact that, like tomorrow night, I'm probably going to go and watch Leeds Leicester. Yeah. In in Leicester, uh, but if I don't go, there will be a way for me to watch that game. And I, I kind of think, given that right now we could flip that laptop up and and find 
almost any film or a clip of any television show going that it, it, you should be able to watch any sport live at any time. And, and I, don't, I don't believe that it will be detrimental to, to smaller clubs because I think the people who are going to go and see smaller clubs will go anyway. And it will actually allow people who, who are unable to attend matches to take part. And I think, but I think you, I think you're getting at something that's right. That there's kind of layers upon layers of, of media and interaction and gambling, and it's very cluttered the kind of football landscape now. Uh, and the days when you would just sit around celebrating, you know, an epic tackle. I just think we've become so robotic and everything. I, I think that it's it's pure opinion expression, but it's borderline. Uh, insincere, even if that is a political uh, opinion on Twitter about Liz Truss, I just don't think people care as much anymore. Because I don't think it's insincere. I think it's often it's unfounded. Numb. I think when you see, I think part of the problem is you, you. It's very easy to come into contact with people now who are just thick, and I think that as you prior to the big kind of like the social media river kind of washing around you every day. You know, once you click in there, yeah. uh, and once you, you you kind of like open up your app, you, you're just subjected to so many yeah. different opinions and the immediacy. Before that, you narrate, you, you kind of like cultivate where you go in life. You choose. If if you live in a small place, uh, and you got the same pub every week, you, you're choosing to put up with the same bollocks from the fucking idiot at the bar. Whereas if you think I don't want to listen to that. I'm going to go and find some people I'm interested in. And if, if you kind of navigate yourself through a journey, you select who you're with and where you're with. Now, obviously, people who... Um, I'm lucky in that I, I've only ever had, ever had really good jobs. You know, so I've usually been in, in offices where people are, uh, that are kind of relatively similar to me in, in, the, in the interest in what we're doing. But obviously, a lot of people have to work with people they don't like as well. But you you kind of... You can't... Apart from using the mute and the block button or just living in an echo chamber, it's difficult to be, whether it's a football fan or a political thing or... Um, I, don't, I don't know if people argue tribally about music like they used to do, but um, you just encounter all this stuff. I mean, I had to say to this guy whose opinions that I liked, I said, can you just stop answering all of these fucking idiots? Because what you're doing is you, you're pushing them all... You're sharing that the message, in, that into, goes in, yeah. and it's depressing me. That goes into the racism thing in football, though, as well. The fact yeah. that we, we highlight and make an issue out of a, a troll, as they call him, who doesn't have his face or anything as his profile picture and probably a fake name. Yeah, I don't like that. I think, you know, you should be able... Ignore them. You should be able to get on... T you shouldn't be able to... It would be good if anonymous accounts weren't... Right, I mean, you, you kind of get involved in a, in a row about you know, some political thing, and you're dealing with somebody who's called John, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, and there's no picture, or there's a picture of a helicopter, or a coat of arms, or something, and you just think, the guy's talking about really serious issues, he hasn't got the courage to put his name on there, or his photograph, and it's just cowardice, really, you know, you can't, you know, you can't have a straight debate with somebody who's scared of their own opinions being seen by people they work with or people they know, and that's what they're doing. You know the way you had so much power, in a way, so young? I mean, to be features Influence. Editor. Yeah, and... Not power, influence. Influence, and professional, what, what people on the street would see, in a way, is power. Yeah. Very well connected, and a, a job that mattered, and, and, as you said, influenced people. Is that something that you kind of got sick of, after Loaded? Like, why... No. <laughs> is it not? 
But why didn't, like, surely uh, when you're as young doing what you did, would you not be just in a position to be, like, a, a borderline kind of media mogul now at this point? Um, well, I got offered jobs that I didn't take at different parts of my career. Did the industry I mean, modernise anything? At Loaded, I was being courted by newspaper owners to edit papers. I was 29. I had a fairly heavy drug habit and drink problem. Yeah. But at that point, I didn't see it as a problem. I, did, I had a lifestyle that would have been incompatible with, um, you know, showing up at an office at half eight every morning in a white shirt and a tie and, 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 and kind of running a hundred strong newspaper. But then again, when I got to know newspaper editors, you know, I'd see two or three of them taking cocaine. So, I mean, maybe I was just a little bit too young to be doing that. But... um I think, I mean, yeah, you know, I could, I guess what I should have done was after I sold my business, I should have just got back up and got on with it. But I had a, I, I had a really young son and I guess that would be the start of the 2000s. I sold my business in about 2005, I think, and I made a lot of money from it. And I just, I kind of, I just wanted to take him to school. I wanted to walk past the end of this road where we're recording this and take him to school every day. And then people started offering me a lot of money to not work full time. So brands started, media brands started asking me to help them, you know, part time or, or, or just to maybe even just for a fortnight or just for a day a week or whatever. So I, so I found I was able to earn quite a lot of money without running a big business. But I did. I really liked having my own company. But I'm I'm a little bit of a self-saboteur, so I think I probably held myself back. But also, I remember, I can remember one time when we were talking about building my business, and my, the lawyer that had done some deals for me, Julian, said, Are you sure you want to do this? I said, why don't you wait till you're like 44 and do this? You know, when you're a little bit older and it, you kind of... And I understand what he means now, because I could, I could do... The things that I did when I was younger are a lot better now, just because I'm calmer. Yeah. And and um, but the so it's not the even, idea it, that it, I would become Rupert Murdoch or something was is is not feasible, given that I for most of my twenties and thirties I was working for other people. So yeah. and also I guess what we were saying about the social media, you know, I was a little bit old for that. By the time the kind of the social media age had arrived and it was bright people in their kind of late 20s or whatever developing different platforms, I was watching 64 Zoo Lane with my kid. You know, I was watching the Fimbles. I was like putting him to bed with my my wife, you know, so we're kind of... I left the NME when I was 25 because I thought I was too old to do to be there. That was one of the reasons I left. I had a, I had a kind of a, a sort of a purist take that, that pop music was for teenagers, really. And I felt like an old man, which is bonkers, because I could have stayed there. I mean, I had colleagues that stayed there after me for another decade, and they'd already been there a long time before I got there. But if you look at something like Barstool Sports, you know that American thing, and they film the kind of in-office fights, and they have, like, little segments that would kind of be reminiscent of the Crisp World Cup, and they do pizza reviews. Yeah, yeah. That is just really a modernization of something like Loaded. Well, I see the stuff we did at Loaded everywhere. I, I don't you think, think it, this it, stuff subject to the same kind of bubble. Well, it didn't end quickly. I think it, you know, they nobody expected in the publishing world Loaded to even work. 
the general perception in magazine publishing in the early 90s was that men wouldn't read a mass market magazine. They would read specialist magazines like motorbike magazines yeah. or specialist sports like boxing and rugby and football or whatever. Nobody thought that you would have a magazine that was in a way similar to like a Marie Claire or an L that had a famous actor on the cover yeah. which, or, or, or sports person like we did with the likes of Gary Oldman or Leslie Nielsen or, or like Ardlo Hanlon or Gaz or whoever, or Uma Thurman. So at that point, just getting the first three issues out and it being an instant commercial success, that meant it was going a long time because everybody was writing it off before it came off. And contrary to what the media has perceived retrospectively because of what came after it, my loaded built up to a third of a million copies with men on the cover mainly. You know, my last cover had Harry Hill sitting on a badger, a, de- a stuffed badger. Yeah. And that was before he did the Saturday night TV, you know, the clip shows. Like, yeah, yeah, You've yeah, been yeah. framed. This is when he was just a kind of a working comedian yeah. doing live shows. Dennis Leary, I think, was the cover before that. And the cover before that was Page Three Girl, Joe Guest, interviewing a scientist, Heinz Wolf. You know, we were kind of fucking around having a lot of fun. And it was... Um, and, but what I, what I know is that what we did, what I, what I created the space for, for the team and I to do, is, is now totally accessible to anybody. Did you find cocaine tough to quit? My problem wasn't the cocaine. The problem was me. You know, I had a fucking nose like and a mouth like a vacuum cleaner. You know, or a, an, a, you know, kind of a drain. I just... Um, it was never just one drug. It was whatever I was taking to change the way I felt. So drink was probably the big underlying factor. And, you know, drink was the cake. Cocaine was the icing. And other drugs was the silver balls. You know, it was like one big cake. You don't kind of take, se- separate them. It took me about um, six or seven months of seeing a guy twice a week for an hour. A time... To start to be able to educate myself a little bit on how life might be better or get some self-perspective on what was going on. And um, it was difficult at the beginning to go to those sessions. And what happened was I threw a bottle through a window at GQ in the middle of Mayfair. And it went over a cash point queue and through a car window. And we were just fucking around in the office, me and two other writers pissed. And um, that happened. And um, thankfully, the lady who ran the HR department at the company that published GQ magazine said, do you need some help? And it was the first time anyone had ever said that to me. And she called it right. Yeah, I did need help. And I knew that I needed help because probably for a year before, I'd be out late at night in places I didn't want to be with people I didn't want to be with, doing things I didn't want to do. I'd started sitting, scribbling on beer mats, trying to make sense of what was going in my head. Um, you know, the Coke wasn't, it's not a good, Jarvis Cocker said a brilliant line in a film about the 90s. He said, you never hear anybody say, oh, he's become such a nice person since he's been on that cocaine. You know, it's it's not, I mean, I, I like, I really like, gra- I like taking acid, I like grass. And I, I look back and I wondered why I stopped doing those drugs. I think maybe because of just access, there was less of that sort of stuff kicking around at, at GQ than there, there was at loads. So of are you fully sober now? Yeah, yeah. So how long have you been sober? 
24 years. And you ever, what year were we in? Yeah, 24, 24 years. So was that nearly, is also linked to the reason why you never kind of re-entered that intensive media? That's a good point. For me, I was very ambitious. Not cutthroat ambitious. You know, I wouldn't do somebody over or anything to, to get what I want, but I was ambitious for what I could achieve when I was a young writer. And that's how I ended up being made, you know, features editor and then later going higher up the... I became to associate ambition with excess. That level of ambition is kind of a an abuse of a substance in a way. That that level of uh, starting your own magazine, being that young, being that influential, traveling that much, having that many experiences and people travel through your worldview yeah, is so different. It's, it's an abuse of life in a way. Well, it's not abusive. It it, it wasn't an abuse. It but it was it was like a drug. Yeah. I nearly at the front of my book. I nearly put a quote from a guy I used to be friendly with called John Best. He was a music publicist when I was a music writer. He worked at Virgin Records, and now he manages that band Sigur Ross from Iceland. And John once said to me, you're not really into music, you're into excitement. And he was half right, because obviously I was into music. But he was also, he struck on something which I wrote about in the book, is that very early on, particularly when I was first going to gigs, I was the high that I felt slamming around down the front of the gig, whether it would be the Ramones or the Cramps or the Three Johns or the Specials, whoever I was watching. I, I just felt euphoric. And I would could also get that from getting particular singles and listening to them again and again and again. And I had that long after I finished taking drugs. So I definitely was inspired by excitement. And I would still... You know, I've start. I've taken up a policy now since this has been finished writing to just go back to travelling like I did when I was, as much as possible, like when I was 19. So in a way, though, the, the need for professional achievement was nearly, with the alcohol, with the cocaine, you in a way internalised it as a, as a drug. And that's why it's also something you kind of put down in 1998 with the rest of the substances. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good analysis. Would you find yourself as happy now? Because when you yeah, people totally. look, when people look at sober people, they 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 do sometimes think they're ju- they're just lying and avoiding the risk of the past. But no, that's not the case with me. Um, y- you know, if somebody ran me up today and said, "Do you want to do this big job?" I would do that, but I, I don't think that's going to happen with me because there aren't any jobs around that could do. And two, I think the way that I've chosen to present myself makes me look a little bit damaged it's also yeah but it's also a lot easier when you've done it when you've been there and bought the t-shirt and lived the life of such excitement yeah but it's but it's also you know publishing's not as exciting as it was in the 1990s absolutely not you know it's sometimes they go to the sort of magazine conferences i'll ask me to go and talk and they're kind of like a shadow of them of what they were like i mean you've read the uh, the chapter about the drugs at the 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 acid at the awards those are we were getting awards every every awards. There were two big awards every year, and we were getting awards. We were winning them every every time I went. I'd be getting editor of the year every time. Not, I don't mean like you know once once every four years. Every single time we went, usually me would end up on the stage getting best magazine. So it was tremendously exciting, and to have that opportunity to sell so many magazines and have. Make, I mean, it wasn't making loads of money for me, but to have so many adverts in, it was a really euphoric, exciting time, and I don't think it's like that now. But I don't lack ambition now, 
But for a long time, I've been on like third album syndrome. Once you've made a little bit of money, enough money not to be worried, you know, about, you know, there's, been, there's times when I've not been earning money. When, I, when I've kind of thought I could do with earning some cash. But the, you know, absolutely. If I, I did actually, I went to see an old boss of mine uh, a few years ago, the guy who, who owned GQ. And I asked him if he could recommend me to somebody in America to go and do some work there. I just I'd split up with my the the, the, the um, you know my, the mum of my little boy. So this was about five years ago or something. And uh, I thought I'm going to go and live in New York. And I thought I'll see if I can go and work on this particular magazine. I'd, and I just said to him, Look, I don't want to be the editor. I just want a senior job, just to actually get to work with words and headlines and and, and being. And he said, Yeah, I'll definitely do that. You're one of the great magazine guys. And the bloat in question is not the guy I asked, but the the man I asked him to put a word in with. The editor resigned two days later. So, but you just, you're living in an era when, you were talking about how football has changed, but you're living in an era where, I'm living in an era when things like the Lad Bible or Joe, you know, provide this huge um, multi-platform, multi-content sort of delivery system for masses and masses and masses of users but i'm you know i'm from an era when we just we printed up we print part of it michael is i couldn't sit still so i didn't think i wasn't thinking about what will i do for a living when i'm 50 yeah absolutely i didn't really think i'd get past 33 you know did you think you'd be a young dyer because a lot of the guys that you idolize were that i'd be a a young dyer that you'd die young I thought that might be a possibility. And then, um, you know, I did a lot of stupid things, just, you know, in cars and things. Along, Were you nearly trying to in a, in a weird way? Were you nearly trying to Well, when I got way? clean, I kind of came to the idea that maybe I was slowly trying to kind of get to where my mum was. But that's also sort of a jaundiced look at it because I didn't start off using to do that. I was already drinking heavily when my mum was alive, you know. Uh, I just liked drinking. You know, I was I was like one of those people that did the, the, plug, what, the plug wasn't in the bath. And but the but the people running. who can't sit still, the, the fucking wine houses, the, the Jim Morrisons and all those people who are just constantly achieving and achieving, they are kind of afraid of how important they're becoming. So they do flirt with death a bit. James Dean flirted with death a bit. Like all these young people, you fucking Jeff Buckley, or what happened in the lake. Yeah. And all I'm these glad, weird forms I'm glad of I didn't, death that do occur. I'm glad that didn't happen. There were moments when I was lucky that, you know, there were moments I look back and I just think, well, I was in New York two weeks ago. I went past the Chelsea Hotel and there was a, there was a night there when I think about wonder what I was doing. I was sitting on the window ledge with, wrapped around an enormous television, naked, at the top of the hotel, wondering, what was I doing there? Was were you like, on your own? Or was I just to... doing it to, like, alarm my mate? So was I doing yeah. it because I intended to throw the TV out, or was I going to go with it? Um, and there were lots of moments like that when there were just very stupid things. Somebody put up a thing on Facebook the other day about a day way back at NME when me and one of the guys of advertising were... We spent most of the... The enemy boat trip up and down the Thames, hanging over the edge, just just hanging, see how far we could hang, going under Tower Bridge, hanging over the edge of this boat. And it was just, I mean, it was just sort of stupid bollocks that people do when they're teenagers, you know. So I think 
I just like the excitement of doing stuff you weren't supposed to do. And I think that um, I don't. So maybe, maybe what you're saying might be right, but it wasn't a conscious thing. It was only something I became apparent about later. I'm a prisoner of desire And I keep myself need Cause I'm done taking victims In this self-centered life And I stay the night Because I'm not one to That is Tempest with Prisoner of Desire. 
and we appreciate the music, gentlemen. Um, I also personally took a lot of um, pleasure from the metal-fingered slide guitar as it forces me to smell and taste the air of Austin, Texas, which, if you don't know by now, is the greatest town on earth. How did you get David Chase? Just We've had Steve Van Zandt and Chaz Palminteri and a I few did. other people who have been kind of... You say we've already had people. And yeah, that's why I, I'd seen, like I said, I knew that you had good people on. Yeah. That's why I didn't even go, I just went, yeah, okay. Was he great, David Chase? I'm going to listen to it. Because I I, yeah. of the hearing aids, I don't listen to a lot of podcasts. Yeah. You know, I'm not like with the little white things walking around listening. It's a fucking mind. The only problem with David Chase was that it was, it was remote. Love to have done it face-to-face. I didn't like the film much. No, it was never going to be as good, though. It was too... And, um, and getting your man in to play, getting the son in was... Well, I actually like that's what I like. I thought that was great. I thought the mother and the son were great casting. I thought I thought I just found as a viewer, you're so focused on the fact that it's the son, though. It it, well, nearly, it, 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 it it exceeds the fiction. Yeah, but I, no, but I like that, and I think the um, it, it's difficult to follow things in it in different formats. Presume loaded uh, approached Beckham numerous times. Not at loaded. In fact, not long after I left loaded, they had David Beckham on the cover. And it was, you know, a quite clean-cut young shot. And what they did was they put a model over the top of it in some plastic or some rubber trousers and with the quote from his mouth, say, over the top of his face, there was a caption saying, am I going to be on the cover yet? And they knew what they were trying to do. They were trying to be smart because, you know, I would do a lot of smart covers. But I didn't, I didn't think it looked great. I think I thought it was a mess. But he wasn't – I think he's more interesting as a, kind of an older – person really I think he's, he's he's become more interesting as he's got older he wasn't a particularly interesting young I don't guy. think he's interesting now either though none of those man you era at that point there was I mean Gary Neville now that he's his own man or yeah. Roy Roy Keane now that you see these people Keane was always interesting it was just uh, not if you're a Leeds fan but also actually not massively uh, but he know? was getting arrested every week he left side pan no but he wasn't like he is now where he's compulsive viewing and you kind of drop your, your inter-club rivalries because he's just marvellous to watch. If you if you go back and watch his interview when he talks about why he left Saipan, it's it's the same shit that he's doing now. We just viewed it more seriously because he was still active and still playing. But now that he's old and has a beard, we assume he's a comedian. He's like, he's like the grumpy old uncle at Christmas. Well, the first time he said anything that made me interested about him was in Keen Vieira when he was talking about how he felt he had to establish himself and who he had to match himself against. So when he says... He said, first of all, there was Paul Ince and Brian Robson at Man United. And then there was David Batty, Gary Speed and Rob Lee. That was the next level that he wanted to be at. And then after that, he said there was just you to Patrick Vieira. So I like that. I thought, OK, he, he, that's a good way of talking about the other players that he admired or he liked playing against or he wanted to be as good as. But he's much more interesting now. And I think that comes back to what we were saying, that there is so much football media now. I mean, I don't know how many different platforms Gary Neville's discussions with other ex-Man United players go on, but they seem to be endless. And um, but, but you see a lot more of these people. I mean, the footballers didn't know how to talk to you in the early 90s. And when but they were nearly more natural. Like, if you got someone like Gaza on, and he was being that ridiculous, it was more... Yeah, yeah but Gaza's a total one-off. Gaza's like... It, it's sad that Gaza's... Well, what of the Stan Collymores and all those characters? Like, there was a... Stan Collymore became, like, a fervently passionate... Um, talk sport kind of analyst and presenter later in his life. But at, at the time, he, he kind of, you know, he was known as the guy who beat up Ulrika. You didn't see anything 
the, the levels of uh, access that you get to to those players now, and then also, do you think they're real now though? But there are there are actual players now that that have the opportunity to put their opinions or their experience. I mean, the obvious one is Marcus Rashford. You know, going out of his way to to kind of fight for kids to have free school dinners. There was nothing like that going but on. But it's then. nearly like the uh, it's nearly like the opinion on the platform is now coming ahead of the career. Like I don't think he'd he'd still be at United if it wasn't for the political stuff he got involved in. Because based off his Who? performance, Marcus Rashford. He'd still be at United. I don't think he would still be at United if it wasn't for the political voice that he put out you two think years he'd ago. You think he'd been let go? Yeah, because based on his performance, he hasn't performed as a Manchester United forward for, for two years. Well, now. I don't, I'm not sure about that. What I do think is that they are a big believers in that that club are very aware of the importance of having one homegrown player. So I knew a lot of Man United fans who were upset when Welbeck went because he'd been a homegrown player, mm. and obviously the bumper. The bumper group that was, you know, there in the early nineties, Nicky Butt and and, and the Nevels yeah, and so on. So that's, I think, I, my take will be that was probably more important for them to have that than the um, the, the food thing going on. But it's great what he did, you know. My little boy, at his mum's house. He has the the Rashford books, and his mum said to me, he's worried because he doesn't think you'll he'll allow you you will allow him to put a picture of my, of of him up on the on his wall at your house. I said I don't mind if he admires him and he likes him but just can it be in an England shirt not a red The hatred of Leeds and United is a very unique one isn't it? Particularly ugly in ways. But you know what it's it's actually quite a modern thing because I asked Eric uh, I asked Eddie Gray who was a great brilliant player if you don't know Eddie Gray, yeah, just, yeah. just Google YouTube Eddie Gray v Burnley. You'll see two of the greatest goals yeah. you'll ever see. He's, uh, Brian Clough said if he was a horse, he would have been put down years ago. Yeah, in the but, you know, Brian Clough, it's, it's amazing how that film kind of like rehabilitated his time at Leeds because he was, he was out of his depth without Peter Taylor with him. That was a partnership. It was a partnership at Derby. It was a partnership at so Nottingham think, Forest. You think it was actually a managerial Clough inadequacy did. as opposed to the fact that the players wouldn't accept him because he'd previously criticised totally. He failed to, to take up Peter, Peter Taylor. He couldn't get Peter Taylor to go with him. And without Peter Taylor as the, as the uh, sort of older brother type figure there or the father figure there in the managerial partnership, he didn't know how to deal with these players but, who were much better than the players he'd coached at Derby and much better than he'd ever been. You know the iconic TV show with him and Revian though? Yeah, the, the I think Clough outclasses him. Well, Clough was... The di- I think the difference was Clough was already at that point a very, very visible television personality. He was a... a they used to have this thing on Saturday night on ITV and join the World Cup. Yeah. Where they'd just have contemporary managers all the time. I mean, that's, now, if you look at the World Cup, there'll mainly be ex-players and ex-managers talking. But they used to actually have... People of the day yeah, on yeah, there, yeah. and uh, so Clough had done that a lot with, with Brian Moore, and so there was a difference between their personalities. You know, Don Revy was quite a a private guy. You know, he wasn't one for for you know public facings. Again, a kind of opinion like Clough was. I'm I'm a big fan of Clough. I've read a great book recently called uh, I think it's called something like Take Care, Love Brian. It's particularly brilliant because it's a story that I'd never heard about Clough and it's how he pretty much took on a kind of a waif and stray from um, from the area he grew up in and, and kind of almost adopted him, This young, these two young brothers from the North East. It's fantastic. Be good, love Brian. And it's by Craig Bromfield, 
Bromfield. You should find him and have him on. It's fasc- It's a fascinating book. Uh, it's about this, you know, these. it's like Kez, but with Brian Clough instead of the Kestrel. You know, the Clough kind of takes pity on these two. I don't know if it's pity, but he takes an interest in these two young kids who are begging in the streets near Sunderland and um, starts taking them down. It's fascinating. But, you know, I, I wish it had worked out with Clough at Leeds, but he would have had to take Peter Taylor. He didn't. He didn't know how to deal with players of the calibre that he was looking at. Do you remember fondly the early noughties era, Champions League semi-final, Dave O'Leary, or because it led to the financial ruin? How was that looked upon by Leeds fans? Just kind of nearly doing it on, on borrowed money and doesn't really count. The real Ferdinand Robbie Fowler days. It was fantastic. I, w- I worked for Leeds then. I was around the club a lot at that time. I, I was used to sit in the director's room and uh, in the director's, bo- director's box at the, at the games. And I had a lot of access to the players and the people running the club. Um, I think the most specific thing that I like about that was just, I can remember watching a game, I think we were hammering Anderlecht 6-0 or somebody like that. We we had so many brilliant European matches. I remember watching Kewell just running amok and thinking, this might be the best football I ever get to see Leeds play ever. And... Um, it was just, it was so exhilarating and so exciting. And uh, O'Leary did such a brilliant job. And he bought well early on. I mean, he's, Michael Bridges' his injury was, was a real pity because he's a player that most England football fans wouldn't know anything about. But he was absolutely brilliant. And I think he would have become the England centre-forward after Shearer and Sheringham. Do you think, do you think he was that level? He was, he was brilliant. He was at, Michael Bridges was a brilliant player. He could score with both feet. He could move the ball very, very quickly. Um, he was just a fantastic striker. And he was in, he had one year at Leeds where he was actually fit and he scored a whole load of goals and he had a bad inj- injury. And he, You know, in a way, sometimes when a, when a player, it's not a career-ending injury, but it's a career-limiting injury. It's bad, you know. So Dean Ashton had his career ended. He was another player that was highly tipped to be a, a, a top England striker. And his career was ended, but Bridges was able to carry on. He went to Newcastle and then he went and finished his career in Australia where he does a lot of media work. But he was a fantastic player, the young Alan Smith. This is a thing that, because I was lucky enough to be around the club and I I would hear things that and, and be told and, and understand things that the, that from people around it that, that, that kind of didn't filter out to people. He was told very, very clearly, you have to go to Manchester United or Leeds will go bust. And there won't be a Leeds United. And I think the only other offer on the table was from Middlesbrough for a million pounds. I mean, there's no way Alan Clough, uh, sorry, there's no way Alan Smith just popped up one day and said, hey, I want to join Man United. I'm going to, when he said he wouldn't join Man United, he meant it. Um, but I think I, I would challenge anybody who uh, was told, it was, who like, it, was like, it was like he never got over having to do that. No, I mean, it, it the, the saddest... Like, even when he came to United, although he performed and he put his heart into it and he became a cult figure because he broke his leg in Anfield and stuff like that and came back, it was like he was just an imposter, really, wearing the United shirt in a way. It was like he was playing with a frown on his face. That's what I said. Yeah, of course he didn't want to be he there. He felt dirty. There was an interesting story on Twitter about a guy who um, was... I think he was working as a caretaker or a security guard in a, in a, flat, in a sort of upmarket flats where Smith lived. And he, and when Alan Smith was leaving, he um, he fa- he saw him taking a lot of, you know, he was clearing his flat. I think did he go to Newcastle after Man United? Mm. I think he did. He he was clearing his flat and he was throwing stuff away. 
And the guy was holding the door for him, and he saw he was throwing away his FA Cup losers medal. Medal. The guy said, "Do you not want that?" He said, "No, no not really." What to make of Jesse Marsh? Uh, I'd like it to work for him, and at first I didn't like him because the the American thing. No, I don't. I've got no problem with what country he's from. I just thought he was very crass in the way he made some comments about Bielsa's time there. He referred to a bit where they were, the players were kind of reverting to what Bielsa told them in training, and he referred to it as bad habits. It's like he's done nothing in management in comparison to the the, the, the managers in the league now in in the Premier League. Um, so to be talking about what is and isn't a bad habit, it was quite early to be saying that and. But then, and the football we played last season was absolutely appalling. It was like going from eating the finest sushi to being served dog shit. It was it was terrible. You know, we beat we beat Watford three 0 It was the worst victory I've ever seen in my life. So, to uh, if if that had followed an average manager, you'd have been disappointed. But to follow somebody who's created the best football played. Um, for, for decades at Leeds, it was it was hard doing. But the start of the season, the the, the club bought some good players. The, I think they got good return for the for Calvin Phillips money and and the Rafina money. I think Sinister, the Colombian winger we've got, looks good. He scored I think three in three goals in four games. He started um, the two the more central working midfielders, Tyler Adams, the, the American. Midfielders is a really good player, and uh, Rocco as well, the, the Spanish player that we've got from Bayern Munich reserves is a good player, and so that you know they kind of the the they bought well in the summer and they started well, and after four or five games, I was thinking, okay, yeah, you know maybe I was a bit quick to judge, or maybe he was just trying to think, you know, he's had a lot to handle, and then we go into that week where I went to all of these games, where we got. We got a point against Everton and we should have beaten them. We lost against Brighton and the least we should have done was drawn against them. And then we got hammered and ripped apart by Brentford. And all the way through that Brentford game, I kept thinking we can keep doing this. But on the other side of the pitch, he's jumping up and down and screaming and shouting like a toddler. I think when you get to the Premier League, you're dealing with the best collection of club football teams in world football. You know, I know other leagues like... The French and the Italian and the, the Spanish and the, the Portuguese and the German leagues have very good players, very good teams, but they don't have as many very good teams. If you took a, if you took a mid-table, good mid-table team, if you, if you, I know Spurs aren't mid-table, but if you, if you took Spurs and put them in the Italian league, they'd win the league. I don't know. No doubt about that in my mind. And I think mentality so, comes in. So he's in the big league now. He's in. He's in the big league and. He's not been in that before. I don't know if Spurs are better than that. I, I just think, I, in terms of consistency, points totals needed. Like that Spurs team has shown. Okay, but time. you know what? You know what I'm talking about. If you took, if you took West Ham last season, I think and put all, them in the also, German we're, league. We're also quick to say that as as fans of uh, English football. But even if you look at the Euros, it's not English football. But if you look at the Euros final, yeah, but that pa- was down Southgate picking a, a more paper, conservative still team. Still on paper, that English team should have so much more quality and uh, 100%. Yeah, but you give that team to Bielsa or Klopp or Guardiola, would have beaten the Italian team. No problem. Southgate's a defender and he plays with five defensive players, you know, before you've even... In fact, he plays with seven defensive players. Do you think it's a huge waste of a great generation of players by keeping Southgate no, in the job? it's not a huge waste because they've improved tournament on tournament and it's been but really the draws, exciting. The draws have been very beneficial. The what? The draws. 
Yeah, but you can only beat who's in front of you. You know, if you go back, we talk about Nottingham Forest. If you go back and look at who they beat to become European champions, it's a pretty easy run, apart from knocking Liverpool, Liverpool out of the first yeah. round. I mean, they beat Malmo in the final. Yeah. When's the last time anyone heard of Malmo in a final? Nobody's even heard of them apart from it's 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 the sort of the town where Zlatan comes from, the city. Yeah. But to go back to Marsh, I, I don't people the fans think, oh, he's really passionate, he's appealing things, but the referees see that screaming and shouting and getting in the face of the fourth official and the linesman and so on. And they just they're not gonna warm to the guy. They're not gonna think, all right, we'll give him the benefit of doubt, or we'll we'll feel more open-minded about, you know, 50-50 decisions. And the same, I've asked, I've asked ex-players, of, not of Leeds, but of mates who, who played professional football. I said, what do you think when you see the manager doing that? And they just, they said, you just look at each other and think, what's he going on? What's he doing? Because if he's, if he's screaming and shouting and it's, and it's a close game, he could be looking and thinking, that, that, that kind of Southampton left back there, and he's looking a bit, he's getting too far forward. If I put... If I put like my my racy young right winger in, maybe he'll peg him back a bit. You know, he could be making analysis based on what's going on in the game rather than screaming about decisions. Have you ever seen a decision where screaming in the face of the manager, screaming in the face of of, of one of the officials has changed it? So do you think he has that American performative need that you uh, see? No, in I don't, it's nothing to do with his with his nationality. I think it's absolutely. I mean, the, the, one of the good things about his nationality is we probably wouldn't have got Tyler Adams and Brendan Aronson they may not have been on the on, on the landscape and they're both good players and they're exciting players to watch at Leeds. So in that respect, that's a positive. I don't I don't care whether he's from America or not or whether there's a comedy character doing the same job. I, he could be from Scotland or Scandinavia or Australia. I, I, I wouldn't care where he came from. An all-time Premier League 11, who would you have in it? Oh, it's, imp- it's an impossible question. Van der Sar and goal. No, not Van der Sar and goal. But of course it would be Van der Sar. No, no, I wouldn't even... Uh, you'd have to give me time to think about this. Ashley Cole left back. No. I'll give you mine real quick. Van der Sar, Cole, Ferdinand Terry. Okay. Kyle Walker now. Okay. Because you, you have to. I'd go Kante and Scholes. i put Gary Kelly in front of all of them. i put Gary Kelly in uh, goals. No. <laughs> no, I think somebody asked me the other day, they said, what's your favourite goal? And um, I instinctively think of that goal Bergkamp scored where he flicked the ball around the Newcastle keeper. Mm. I thought that was absolutely amazing. I thought it was a, I thought that was fantastic. And of course, there's uh, being asked your favourite team or your favourite band or your favourite gig or your favourite um, goal. It's an impossible an- question to answer because the simple reason that y- you like different things for different reasons at different times of the day or different times of your life. And... Um, you know, we've got this young player at Leeds called uh, Joe Gelhart. His nickname is Joffy. And he's not, he's kind of not broken through yet. The expectation is huge. You have people like Martin Keown compared him to Messi. Um, Martin Keown's comparison yeah, but, is you know, but, when he, but when he's sitting on Match of the Day saying that, or it, it puts a tremendous amount of expectation on the, on the kid's shoulders. But he scored two fantastic goals for us that were really important in the games they were in last season, a, a, an equaliser with Chelsea away in, in about the 80th minute when he came on, and then a, and another goal against Norwich, which kept us in at that point, kept us in with a chance of, of staying up. Um, and both of them were just the classic uh, Lineker-esque sprinting into the six-yard box to meet the, cr- the fast cross ball and banged into the roof of the net. Now, they weren't 
spectacular goals to look at, but the sense of excitement of seeing this young kid burst forward through past all these men, mainly much bigger than him, and just banging this ball in and and reading it. For me, they're great goals. Or when Jermaine Beckford scored the goal when we were 10 men down in the last game, uh, I think it was almost the last game of the season, when for Leeds to get out of League One against Bristol Rovers, Beckford still annoys me that, due to the goal in Old Trafford. That, that was, you know, that was a that was an amazing moment. That sense of excitement, and mm. it doesn't matter whether you support Hendon or Hereford or Napoli or Juventus or Manchester City or Liverpool or Newcastle, whoever the hell you support, Glasgow Celtic, whoever it is, there are goals that are make you feel brilliant that are not necessarily the most spectacular-looking goals because it's what they mean in the game and for the club that, that counts. I'd finish it off with Ronaldo Bale and probably Rooney off Henri, but just to finish up, um, <laughs> like a football team, something that stays with you uh, for life. It's quite an important uh, static part of, of a man's life in kind of... And a woman's. British culture and a woman's life. But speaking of women and speaking of love, um, and as you say this to a younger man, is the point of relationships to learn from them and have people teach you things about yourself and move on from them? Or do you change yourself in order to stay in a long-term relationship even though it's killing your soul? Is the art of monogamy a myth? For such a big issue. Say it again. I'm, I'm prone to thinking just to say something flippant. Or do you want a serious answer? Yeah. Like you, shouldn't, you shouldn't stay in a relationship if it's killing but your have soul. You, how, many, how many women would you say you've loved? How many? How many women would you say you've loved? Oh, man. <laughs> Uh, can we go back to talking about Leeds? No. <laughs> but what is what is the concept? You see things like marriage, especially in the modern context. Are you I married? Ch- no. In my experience... Are you glad that... In my experience, you don't stay in a relationship which, which isn't working and, and, and isn't right. But equally, I was saying this to a friend recently. In fact, I've said it to a couple of people at various times. Um... Equally, if you have children and there's something starting to falter in your relationship, you have to try and find a way to make that work. But that doesn't mean you'd be unhappy. It's vital, if you possible, to be able to stay in the relationship, as a, particularly as a man, that allows you to see as much of your children and the children, most importantly, to, to be around their dad. But if you have a sense of anti-authority and revolution in you and cannot be controlled, are you doomed for long-term relationships, really, unless you have to then be the controller there's, there's no, there always has a, to be an exchange of control in these relationships it seems no I don't think there has to be you know like you know I'm like I'm, I'm 57 I've just turned 57 and I'm in a relationship that is not like others that I've been in before and that there's a space there's a space that is that I look across at the person I go out with and there's a, there's a I've been sitting there for four years but there's a sense of curiosity like, I don't know everything about her, and I didn't have a great deal of expectations about her. There was a degree of mystique that I found interesting. And I wasn't trying to replicate, you know, a lot of things that happen, and people in relationships try and replicate the, if they're heterosexual, the opposite sex parent, you know, and um, either in their behaviour, their mannerisms, their looks or whatever. And, and I haven't done that here. And so my experience is now probably hopefully you know with a fair bit of life to go yet but with a lot of life having been behind me that you can still encounter new things so a guy was telling me at the weekend that he always chooses kind of 
mad girls to go out with or something. Use some phrase like that. And it's, I think the idea of, uh, you know, that would be a phrase that I would have used when I was younger to be attracted to people that were a little bit, you know, kind of wild or crazy or whatever. But you shouldn't be, uh, my opinion is, you shouldn't be kind of formulating the type of person that you go out with because once you step outside of your expectations, you might find something exciting and different. And um, there's also, there's always a hell of a rush. I remember that when I was, when I was at GQ, there was a woman that worked for me, it was a very senior job. Every weekend, and she was great at what she did, every weekend she said, I said, what are you doing this weekend? And she'd go, oh, I'm going to Scotland to a wedding. I go, okay, the following weekend we get to Friday. I said, oh, what are you doing this weekend? She said, oh, I'm going to Hampshire to a wedding. And this went on for about seven weeks. And I said, isn't this doing your head in? And she goes, well, yeah, you know, obviously I want to get married. <laughs> you know, you got weddings every week. You want to get, you know, you're going you're gonna to end up getting married. But there's, I mean, she was like 30 or something. And there is that big pressure as you hit your late 20s and early 30s. People think, oh, I've been grown up now. I'm a grown-up now. I've been grown-up for, like, eight years. And, in, you know, there's no way I was grown-up when I was 28. I was testing crisps for Loaded, for fuck's sake, yeah. you know. And even when I was, like, uh, 30, in my early 30s, putting the bottle through the window, I wasn't a grown-up. It took me to get clean and get sober to even start to understand that what I did had an effect on other people. To understand the consequences. I think that is a key thing, the consequences. So, you know, I've got two kids that I love and they were really great kids and they've got good mums. Um, and, yeah, so you but just, my opinion, you just, I would be like you. You used the phrase like doomed and things like that. And I used to be like that. I used to think like that. And I, and I think as you get older, you you become a little bit more if you've made the right decisions about where you are and you're not stuck in a jaundiced situation that you're not happy with then you do start to get a perspective you can't offer love unless you know yourself but the weird with the way the reproduction system works is and why we have ongoing wars depression and confusion is because we can only produce in a way when we're children so wisdom doesn't come until an age of no longer being able to produce kids and that's why we have unhappy lives as well as our search for meaning but that is the important point: is you. How can you claim to settle down with anyone, uh, and claim it's going to be long term or till death or any of that when you don't do not know yourself on any level? Until, well, I used to think until you hit rock bottom and come back from it, really. But I used to think the moment you moved in with somebody, you, the clock started ticking. That would be the start of the end. Um, and now I don't. But I. But that was sort of based on a cynicism, and it's based on like my own man, my own my experiences of, you know, being a kid whose parents broke up, rowed and broke up. Uh, I think, you know, I know people who, who who met their girlfriends or boyfriends or whatever, whether they're gay or straight. Or, they've been going out for like 27 years since they met them at college. And that was just a mystery to me, how you could do that. I mean, part of me used to think, wow, all the, how ad- you evolve all the adventures you might have missed yeah. out of, but... But, you but know, where you I am right now is... How wouldn't you have to be numbing part of yourself to stay in that agreement? For, for me, somebody is influencing the other person there because the brain doesn't work like that. You see so many different things that for 27 years, how would you some not people, get bored and fed up with going no, back? No, because some people, if you're, if, if you're lucky, you they meet They want the protection some, of someone else taking responsibility for the life. I mean, it's interesting. How do you navigate that? 
how do you mag- how do you navigate twenty seven years of a relationship? And, yeah, but people you can't. Do. Would turn it off a part of your brain? No, but people do. People navigate twenty seven years of a relationship and probably are happy. with lies. What? Probably with lies. No, no. This is a very cynical aspect based on your own experiences. As you get older, you encounter people who are clearly happy and have been together for a long time. What what normally happens with me is you get ten years and then at the end of it you have a child and a house. I'm not saying it doesn't <laughs> exist. I'm saying that I I. I don't have the ability to grasp it. No, well, I mean, I didn't. And I understand. Michael, I didn't either. I think this is an interesting conversation because I've never really talked about this, but my opinion would be very, very similar to yours when I was younger. Absolutely. And then... Um, was it not just the kind of grass is always greener thing that's now come in in later life in which you're looking at them and you're kind of falling for the illusion of happiness, but we haven't been there for the 27 years. S- say that slower. As in, it's, is it not a case of uh, looking over the neighbor's garden and thinking they're happier than they are because they're still standing after 27 no, years I don't, and you're no, in I, and out of relationships? Like, how do we know they're just not boring? Well, normally... Is it not just come back Okay, well, I've got boring. a friend who's just ended his marriage. And um, a, a classic thing of you don't hear from them for years because they're in a relationship. Yeah. And then he got in touch with me. And I said, so who are you seeing? Because nobody just ends a marriage like that. Something distracts you. And he said, no, I did, it didn't. He said that he'd had a heart attack. You know, he's in his mid-50s. He'd had a heart attack. And he, he realised when he came away from nearly dying that he just wanted to change the structure of his life. And there he wanted go. a different scenario. He didn't want to waste it anymore, essentially. No, but he had a reality check. He was The, 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 the reality that he was experiencing wasn't as good as, as, as what he wanted. So he did something constructive about it. So these people sitting there for 27 years in a way are no, avoiding it, reality. Because no, be- it doesn't have any it doesn't have any sense in our biology to, to, to want to do that. Honestly, I disagree. I disagree. I think I think that What about when that heart I find it as be- curious as you find it impossible because I used to think this exactly the things you're saying. I used to think exactly that Oh, it's a lie. Or the she can't. Like they or he Some cannot care as happy. much about Eric Cantona or the fucking disgrace of Post Fergie United as much as you. So after a while, if a new piece of music comes out or a new film that changes your mindset, or you meet a new woman who's engaged with you emotionally in a way that the well, other for woman start, it might not again. be a woman. You okay, know, it man, might be whatever, another man. Being. Could just be a friendship that makes you kind of go, you know what, maybe he even understands me as a mate emotionally more than this woman did, in order to keep going back to the same thing, to make sure that she is or he is the person that really... Yeah, but it's all about changing. Of, you were talking about biology. I don't think these people change. They avoid change. And that's no, why it's, no, it's, it's, it's the no. same. Some people go to the same it's holiday not, destination every year. It's not, you sound like an, an insane preacher now. No, but they, they do. They go to the same <laughs> holiday destination every year. No, they, no, they, you've, you're getting... A, you're, you're, you're seeing things that work for people. And knowing they wouldn't work for you, so you're assuming that they're living a life that isn't true for them. But it might be. Maybe they go for the se- for the to the same. I mean, I don't even know why I'm arguing on behalf of these imaginary people. Because, as I say, for most of my life, my perception would, of their yeah. situation would be similar to yours. Yeah, I think you've lived. And, and when I was 29, point. absolutely bang on. I'd totally be in agreement with you. I think even older. I, I think. I, I but think now that I'm twice that age, almost. I do know people who've been in relationships for a long time, and they just miraculously, they seem to have met. I just, I just don't think you care anymore. I think when you were at the age, <laughs> the, I think when you were at the yeah, age, believe me, you do. You, you, you care when if, you were at the age where it mattered to your decision making. Something like twenty nine or in your thirties, you knew you didn't want to be that. But now that the time has passed, and those people have already decided, let, let it be. Fuck them. You're not debating it in your own head, so therefore your opinions aren't strong anymore. But when you were at the age, of no, it just believe me, it when it mattered, matter. you made a choice that they were fucking irrational, and it made no sense. 
and I no, think no, you'll agree with me. And if you could go back in time and be twenty nine now, you'd be but, shaking. But my do hand you know off. what? No, but do you know what happens is and you're happy circumstances change and people change, and some people can change in a sort of a partnership. They can both grow old in a way that they've, they've, they've found a way that they can communicate with each Don't other. Buy it. Don't even buy it in bands. I, I don't really buy it in any form of life. I think everyone constantly changes. I don't even believe fucking Ant and Deck. Yeah, but that's that's their job. They're not in a relationship that's... I think they know each other less than they did 10 years ago. I think you can sense it. Yeah, but that's natural. That's good. Yeah. But for me, that intimacy... But, you know, okay, I'll give, five, you, an, I'll give you an thing. example about the, about the way perce- people perceive... They're shagging other people no, and just claiming they no, aren't. No, have an open relationship. Have fun what, about it. What, you think, like, Ant's shagging James Corden? Yeah, no, but you know what I mean? I'm talking about in, the, in those long-term relationships. Or Dexy and Harry Hill or something like yeah. that. You think they're actually having this... No, but i, I give you an example of when people look at Vic and Bob. And now, now Bob is well-known as a very funny man in his own right. But if you were lucky enough to be around them, like I, I was, you know, finding them and writing about them for the NME and then having them in Loaded and being on tour with them and spending a lot of time with them... Bob was always a really funny guy. So in that situation, their circumstances have changed, you know, and people see different things in them, but they still work together and they still have that, that understanding of what they're like together. And I actually think now that when, when, I, when I find people or I meet people or I know people who have been happily involved with each other for decades, what I understand is some people meet somebody earlier in life that somehow they make a connection with and they've learned how to operate together. And it doesn't mean that the way that that relationship glues together and works is a negative or is undermined by negativity. That's based on your take and my take when I was your age. But physically and factually, the two biggest battles we face in life, you face them alone. One of them was climbing out of the fanny and trying to navigate your way into birth via the womb, and the other one is dying, having your last breaths alone, then either getting burnt or going into the ground. They're the two biggest things that happen to you, the start and the end. I don't agree. Your own. Oh, Eric leaving Leeds was bigger than dying. Yeah, yeah for sure. You know? yeah, it, 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 but in reality. <laughs> no, that is reality. I don't, I kind of like, I'll be more upset about when Eric left Leeds and, or when Bielsa went. You won't, really have time dying. To, you won't really have time to be upset when, when death's on your door. Well, exactly. So therefore it's not comparable. Because the body comes in and, and knocks all social constructs out of the fucking park. Why, you what, you, have you got, what about your parents? Did they stay together for yeah. your childhood? Yeah. Were, were they happy? How would you define happiness? Well, some of the terms that you used recently in this conversation to, dis, to, to describe I unhappiness. I think there's a suitability to it, like every suburban marriage that goes on. Okay, so d- uh, where, where do you are think... addicted it, to I'm suitability. Trying to, I'm trying to find... And I think we set up the world for suitability. No, but where did... Where, what has shaped your perspective? Because you said it's not based on your own experiences. You're going to be Probably, if you fall in love with somebody that no, you... But it always gets to the point in which I can't change any part of me. And I can pretend to for a while. I can pretend to for a few weeks. And you kind of feel bad and think it's you. Is that what, how long it lasts, your relationship? No, few I've been in relationships for, for years, but okay. there's, it's always come back to that root issue that yeah, I but can't... But you're really I, young. I, know, I don't mean I that in a patronising way. I can't way. see me changing, though. I, I can't see me giving over what no, I see w- other peers and contemporaries giving over okay. in the name of a long-term relationship. Think about I think there's a form of eat. suicide to it. Do you eat the same food now as you ate when you were 13? Not really, but my, my diet's not important to me. Have you food it, as fuel? I'm trying to make a comparison that... In the same way as you might experience something that you choose when, and younger in life, whether it's food or music or clothes or whatever, you know, you, 
you do it and you do it and you do it and you do it. And then you get to a point where you think, I don't want to do that again. I want to change it. Yeah. And that's what you're talking about now. You're doing, you're going through relationships. I'm talking about women who've been very, very nice to me, very good, very loving, giving me so much. And my inability to give 1% of my soul or back down in an argument, even though it would suit it better, to just, just water it down for a second. Just don't get the last word in if it's what you believe in. Does my inability to do that make me a narcissist, a pig? What does it make me? Because I can't fucking do it. And when it's you're best if you down, don't quote the people you're in the relationships with. Yeah, yeah. The, when, when, when you're sitting down well, no, a and bit you're watching that, that Netflix, when, when other guys feel good about it, going, tonight's a night off, I'm chilling out. and what? I get this need to leave the fucking room. I don't want to be there. And these are loving, beautiful women. Yeah, but you're, so you're looking for the right thing and you don't feel you found it. So that means what you do believe someone, someone to hand me my arse, someone to, someone to be right, someone who I believe is winning the argument. Maybe I'm just a sociopath. Maybe. But are you one too? And is that's what made no, you overcompensate? I th- going through the rehab In reading process, parts of your book, no, I saw elements of character that I could attribute to my own life, just in terms of that need to probably avoid things and, in a way, be over the head of the general public. It's, you know what the point when you can give ground a bit? That's a big life-changing moment because it gives you power. Go on. Sometimes people want to have a row, right? If you go into the row with them with the intention of winning the row, you've already lost it because they wanted the row. You've given them... Let me, let me just explain this because I'm having to think about this as I say it. So if you give somebody the power of um, doing what they want, having a row, the result of the row is irrelevant. They wanted the conflict, they wanted the row. When you get to a point in your life where you can go, you know what, I think you're right, actually. I probably did respond to it in that way, or I spoke too quickly, or I probably am wrong. I'm just mouthing off because I feel like I should always mouth off, or I, I, I have got an inability to, 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 to concede a point. The moment you do that, one, they're shocked, the person you're having a row with, and two, you've got another you've got another. Element no, I know armory. all that. I know all that, and that's when we're talking to idiots. That's when we're talking to people we either grew up with. No, no, but to, to do with the people you love. When you love them, though, how? Then you're on your own, though. When you, when you love someone, there's this need, especially if you're raising a child with them, that we need to be on the same page from a value point of view. Well, actually, you don't have to be on the same page. People have different attitudes to how you bring up kids. And I can't go into too much of it because, you know, it's... So Nietzsche and these guys were right. If you have the ability to be alone, it's probably the best you will be mentally. And it's all about an avoidance of loneliness. The ability to be on your own. Yeah. But you can be on your own and be in a relationship. This weekend I was in Scotland, right, in the country, and one of the guys I was with, I only know a little bit through social media, and I've met him two or three times at events. The other guy is a really good mate. He's still around the corner with him. So, you know, strange, but the... The guy that I was with, who, who I've only just sort of getting to know a bit, he was talking about that he spends a lot of time wild camping and doing stuff in mountains and things. And he said, this is only beautiful when you've got somebody to share it with. And what he meant was, as he elaborated, was that he'd done the same trips on his own or with, with a woman that he went camping with. And he had much more fun the second time because he was able to discuss it and share and talk and show the beauty of the mountains. Um, but I actually thought to myself, that's not right. No. Your experience of the two trips is right, 
But something is still beautiful on your own. And when you get to the point where you're comfortable being with yourself and you can be with yourself within a relationship, that's a, that's a strong position to be in. So you don't feel you have to be attached to the other person. Which is much more possible. Or you don't have to be apart from the other person. Much more possible at your age and with your experience, though. They're because not really... <laughs> they're just not expecting the big let's have our life together commitment. They want to have fun. They want to look at sunsets and they want to see the world. But when you're my age, the type of women that uh, you'd be seeking are people who are looking to build together. Let's grow together. Let's change together. I'd love to go out with you a 50-year-old. I'd that. love to go out with a 50-year-old now. With a 50? Yeah. Well, there's a lot of there's a lot of believe me there's a lot of single women who I've, I'm friends with or know um, uh, who are 50. I don't know if they'd want to go out with okay. you, but there are an awful lot of women out there that are that are that have come out of marriages and maybe because the dream doesn't work as you say yeah. that uh, and actually most of the time it doesn't work. Let's be honest. Most yes. the, uh, most, uh, most way, marriages is, end this, in divorce. This is backed by evidence. That's, that's yeah. not me making generalisation. Oh, yeah, that's it's not a like fact. This is a conspiracy. I yeah. wrote, wrote a piece about that, about I, and so I did research into the numbers. But back that, to the women. Pardon. So there's loads of them. <laughs> it's like I regularly have friends say. And how are they? Have looking, you got any how mates? are they looking physically? What? How are they? Are they physically holding up well? Yeah, because they would have had yeah, kind they of look rock great. And roll. Yeah, their appearance would matter. Yeah, they look great. Yeah, you know. But also the other thing is. That's part of the problem. What do you mean? If you are dealing with lust as the entry point to a relationship, no, I wouldn't say it's the entry lust point, is not always going to be there. Lust and excitement—you need—you need more than just attraction. Hundred percent. But I, I wouldn't be a shallow man whatsoever. But I do think looks matter. What? I, th- I do think looks matter in a way. Of course they do. The That's how we appearance. are physically attracted to other people. I even think Cantona's kind of sexiness gave him gave him twenty percent of his mystique and ankle status. His physical attraction, the chest out, the collar up, and in a way, his beautiful... Have you think about asking him out? Eric Anthony. What about getting him on the show? I'd love to get him on the show. I've been in... I've I've sent. Do you like the story where I met Eric in my book? Yeah. That was a great night. I'll tell this, tell this, because people... By the way, if you want to buy my book, it's called Animal House. Yeah, by James Brown. Interesting man. But um, So, I'd put Eric Cantona on the cover of GQ in some photographs that were taken by a, a French photographer called Richard Ojard, I think is how you pronounce his name, and they were, they were on the front of a Spanish magazine called Photo, or French magazine, and there were pictures of him in a Maori war paint style, um, yeah. and loads of pictures of him in these kind of architectural gardens in near Barcelona where he lived, and they were brilliant, and nobody had printed them in English, so put them on the cover of GQ, it looked great, can't remember what we ran with the words, maybe an interview with Richard or something like that, and or maybe maybe the words maybe Richard interviewed Eric in the thing, but put it on the cover. It looked great. And when Joe Strummer died, uh, uh, some months after he died, they, there was a party arranged to celebrate his life at the Damien Hurst's and Jay Jopling's White Cube Gallery in Hoxton in London. And I was invited to it, and because I knew Joe a little bit, and there was a fantastic array of of, of musicians who I'd admired in the 70s. So people like um, just very famous punk and new wave era artists, all sorts of people. Like if, uh, Maybe I'm getting this slightly wrong, but you know, looking around the room, there was like specials, UB40, Stranglers, Squeeze, Boomtown Rats, you know, that, that sort of era of, of artists that the Clash were at the forefront of. So that was quite exciting, so, you know, seeing, you know, seeing all these different... Also seeing them all together and... And, and talking to each other was sort of like 
took me back to being a reader of the enemy, seeing these guys together in the, the in the um, in the gossip columns of, of of the music papers. So you couldn't probably think it got much better. But the, the the evening ended, and we all went on to a cargo nightclub. And about midnight, I'm stood quite near the doors with my mate Dean, who's Irving Welsh's co-writer on on some of the the TV projects. Like, and um, I was with Dean, and we were talking to a man you hooligan called Faz. It was quite a famous man, you Cockney Red. And the three of us were just chatting. And the doors literally kick open, like in an old Western. And these five, four or five guys walked in. And they've got kind of khaki jackets on. And the collars have all turned up. And they've got rolls underneath their arms. I don't mean bread rolls. They've got like sleeping rolls, like sleeping bags yeah. or blankets. And uh, they just stood there, and it's Eric Cantona, and clearly at least one of his brothers, maybe two brothers, and this other guy who I recognised, uh, I vaguely recognised, and we said, so they come in, and we, I couldn't believe it. We were all like, wow. And we got Penny Smith, who was the great enemy music photographer of the late 70s, to take a picture of us with Eric. And uh, so there's a picture somewhere. I've not seen it of me, Faz, Dean, and Eric. And um, it was exciting, you know. It was such a such a brilliant player, Cantona, and um, such an enigmatic character, enigmatic footballer, so different to everybody else. And um, so we started talking, and uh, I said, to, "I said, who are you?" And he said, "I'm Richard." I said, "Are you?" You've, he said, "I'm Eric's photographer friend." I said, are "You the guy that did um, the Maori wall paint shot?" And he said, "Yeah." And I said, "Oh, I'm, I put that picture and the session on the." Front of GQ, and he was really excited because maybe I mean, when GQ was a, at that point, it was we were making it a world recognized brand, yeah, yeah. and um, so he went and got Eric, and he pulled Eric over, and he said, and he's in French. He said, "Oh, this is James. He put you on that phone." And Eric was really like pleased and like shook my hand and said, "Oh, that's great." I said, "Even better, Eric. I'm a Leeds fan. These two are man, you. I'm a Leeds fan." Anyway, so we went and sat down. It was one of the embarrassing things where there was a little rope and they call it a VIP section, but it just means you don't get to meet anyone interesting. But Eric and I sat there with this woman who was one of the managers at the at the Groucho Club and we were chatting and stuff. And it was it was genuinely a really... To go from that evening, uh, just the understanding and the realisation that Joe Strummer and Eric had been friends and Eric had taken the last flight out of France because he got there late, really late, to come to this party to celebrate his friend's life. It was it was great, and then my mate Bucky, who was is uh, a, a music agent. Paul Buck is his name. He's he, he's agent for a lot of bands. He's a Man U fan. He was so pissed. He just staggered over, walked through this little velvet rope, and just jumped on where I was and put his arm around Eric, got him a headlock and started kissing him. <laughs> it was like, to be fair, Eric just went with it. He let Paul pull his head down. It was awkward. It was awful. It was like, but it was really funny. But it was just, I was watching, I was going, Paul, you're ruining the night. Do you resent Cantona's relationship with the United fans and how he is known as the, the king of ultra? No, I don't resent anything about it. I just, I wish he'd stayed at Leeds, but I don't resent, I don't resent anything about that. You know, but the, uh, it was a, it was a great moment getting to meet him, you know, getting to meet, I think that was one of the things I'm lucky about having the magazines was that the nature of the magazines is, is that you fill half of them with interviews with famous people. So to have got to meet so many people who I admired uh, because of what they'd worked in, films or records or football or whatever, music or writers, that, 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 was, that was 
probably my best. I think you get that in the book. You get the sense of fun and enjoyment. It's a positive book, you know. Yeah. Well, James Brown, um, I appreciate you coming on to the Michael Anthony show. It's been fascinating to talk to you. Yeah. And don't don't edit out that relationship stuff. No, no, no. Well, <laughs> and for all the listeners, um, Animal House by James Brown. Head down and get it. It's a fascinating read. Emma show. Thank you. How long was it? That was great, wasn't it? Let's go crack. It's been how many years, my boy? You still don't know my chairs of joy. No need to go, just take it slow. And have you heard the Michael Anthony show? Makes me feel just fine. What's it? Makes me see the light. What about those tears? Tears believe my eyes. How's it make a feel? Makes me feel alright. 